you're hit with this sonic, incredible experience that is, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And I really wanted to figure out a way to capture that for, for audiences. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Inside the Creative Process. I'm your host, Alicia Peterson-Baskell, and I want to thank you so much for being here. I wanted to let you know that for the remainder of the season, I'm going to start sharing my podcast every other week. I'm a true improviser, and as I'm learning how to work within the creative process of podcasting, I'm realizing that in this stage of the work, I need to create a little bit more space for myself to make these podcasts the quality that I want them to be, and also to have time for my own creative endeavors. So please continue to share your favorite episodes with your friends and your colleagues. Even if you just share it with one person, that means so much to me and so much to the sustainability of this show. All of the podcast apps make it really easy to share through text messages or emails or social media. So thank you in advance for that. Now I want to introduce you to a dear friend of mine, Cynthia Stokes. Cynthia Stokes is an American stage and opera director committed to reimagining opera for the 21st century. She challenges the relationship between performer and audience by creating thrilling productions that take place outside of the walls of the traditional theater. For example, Cynthia set an opera outdoors on one of the last plots of undeveloped land overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Southern California. And then she premiered another opera in an abandoned marble quarry in Vermont. She has worked with more than a dozen opera companies across all parts of the United States before she started her own itinerant opera company, San Diego City Opera. She is currently an assistant professor of opera theater at the University of Arizona in Tucson, which is my undergraduate alma mater, by the way. She just got back from South by Southwest where she premiered her latest, very exciting offering. She and her collaborators premiered the first 10 minutes of the Andre Expedition, a virtual reality opera that offers an intimate 360 degree immersive experience for an audience of one. It's really exciting because we're going to hear all about that piece in this podcast. And we're going to hear about Cynthia's journey, her thoughts on parenting as a working artist, and her commitment to making opera accessible to more people. Please welcome my friend, Cynthia Stokes. Hello, Cynthia Stokes. Hello. I'm so, so happy to have this conversation with you. I know that you are such an experienced opera director. And I have known you on a personal level for about five or six years. And yet we haven't really talked about our processes. So I'm so excited. Right. Right. I'm, I'm so excited too. And, and, uh, this is my very first podcast. So I've, I've never been on a podcast before. Well, I feel so, I feel so lucky to be the first (laughs) podcast. I want to give all of us some context before we kind of jump into how you work. I want to know more about how you came to the work that you do. 
I was always one of those kids who was organizing the neighborhood to put on a parade or organizing the neighborhood to put on a play. That impulse came from the moment I was born. I, I think that that was always what I was doing. I was always writing and I was always performing and I was always making things. Of course, I wanted to be a performer, but I think I realized pretty quickly, maybe by the time I was coming out of high school, that that was not going to be my journey, that I actually hated performing. I loved the notion of performing. And what I really liked was rehearsing. Oh, I love and, rehearsal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm right with you on that. Yeah. Rehearsal's the most fun. I always, I just hated the grind of a six show week or a five show week or whatever we were doing. And, and I was also really lucky that very early on, I mean, really in my late teens, I started getting little directing jobs. Oh, wow. I know. I know. Just, you know, somebody was like, Oh, we'll give you a hundred dollars if you'll put together this whatever. And I thought, good God, sure. So it was, it was clearly the low hanging fruit, you know, right after undergraduate school, I went to New York and that was amazing to just have this opportunity to see and to experience so much work across the spectrum. And, and of course I, you know, was living on rice and beans with my best friend down on the Lower East Side and, and just, we were so happy and so fulfilled. And, and again, too, I was directing. I was always, always directing. And um, what kind of work were you, were you seeing? I'm just curious, like what kind of work? Oh my God, everything, you know, cause there was the big downtown scene. So it was recherche and it was CBGBs. And then, you know, you could go to the map for 10 bucks or five bucks and you could sit way up on the high tier and you could see the very, very most famous opera singers of the day. Wow. And it was, it was incredible. And none of us cared that we were standing, you know, it was, it was fantastic in Broadway and just, yeah, it was, it was a, a platter of delicious experiences. And I was also really lucky to be part of a a theater community called Circle Rep, which was a a big off-Broadway company. And they had a director's lab attached to that. And I was 25 and I went over there and interviewed and they accepted me into this director's lab. And what was cool about this lab, and in a funny way, this has really kind of been the foundation of everything that I've done, which was that uh, it was very collaborative. It was very collective. Some of the work was great. Some of the work wasn't great. But what was constant was that you were always working to up your game and that you had a community of peers and colleagues who were always around to support and, and be like, no, that's a hot mess, you know? So, so that was, that was great. And I started to get directing like professional directing gigs, working on new plays. That was really my, my trajectory. And I realized about that time that if I stayed in New York Mm -hmm. and if I continued in the direction that I was going, that I was going to have a career doing two and three handers for the rest of my life. And I knew that that wasn't enough. So I kind of took a look around and I thought, you know, this would be a great time to go to graduate school. I knew that I wanted to be in San Diego and that I wanted to go to UCSD. And, and part of that was the faculty who were brilliant and exciting. And part of that was the connection to Loja Playhouse. And my background had also, you know, in the midst of six and seven and eight, I had played the violin and I played the piano and I sang all of which I did very poorly. (laughs) 
but I loved it. But you did it. (laughs) And and so this idea of returning to music or returning to Um, musical theater or classical music really made a lot of sense. And that three years at UCSD was incredible and profound. And they sent me to the Minnesota Opera for a summer where I got to work with this crazy opera director whose name was Wesley Balk. And Wesley had this system for helping singers become really great performers. And so that coupled with my own physical work, my own experiences as a a performer and as a teacher of performance, uh, it all kind of started to make sense. Uh And I finished graduate school and went over to San Diego Opera and they happened to be doing a new piece for kids. And then I ended up being the staff director for the kids' work at LA Opera for about five or six years doing, doing their new work. And just, but all of that had been new work. And so I hadn't really worked with dead guys that kind of just settled itself. I was, I was really able to work with a couple of really fine, fine opera directors and learned how to, to make that connection between, you know, dead guys and how you stage really big operas. And I just, but I just remember thinking, Oh my God, I'm home. This is, this is, this is where I belong. And again, too, this opportunity to see some of the most exciting art in the world or certainly operatic work in the world was, was at LA at that point in time. And, and it was amazing also to get to see these singers who uh, were coming up as young artists that I was working with, who, you know, went on to have extraordinary careers, you know, so it's really cool. I always remember seeing um, a production of the magic flute and uh, Rod Guilfrey, Rodney Guilfrey, who's this really amazing baritone, played Papageno. And I always remember thinking, oh, Magic Flute is really an opera about a bird man because he, he's such a brilliant performer. And, and getting those opportunities to see really, really fine singers who, who are able to live in that space of being great actors and great singers and have great te- technique and also be amazing colleagues. And that that, that was incredible, but it all, you know, but it all continues to be that sort of mix of, of collaborating, of finding, finding your peeps. Yeah. And, and also really, you know, for me, I think the big thing has really been about listening to myself about what, what the next artistic step has going to be for me to grow. So then, yeah, I was, I was, really lucky again too that Michigan Opera Theater invited me to assistant direct the the world premiere of Margaret Garner which was the Toni Morrison Richard Daniel Poor opera based on her book Beloved oh my gosh yeah it was amazing and that really that was 2004 2005 it really launched a lot of things for me and then you know I was I was directing all over the place and but also at the same time having two really young kids that I needed to make sure were okay. And so I was very lucky to have a community of, of moms and dads and moms and grandmothers who all really supported and, and my partner, my husband, who, you know, continues to be a real force of saying, you know, you should do this, you should do this. So 
about 2015, that itch started again. You know, it's like, oh, this isn't enough. And I decided that, um, that we would see what it would be like to start an itinerant opera company in town. And so uh, a colleague of mine and I started San Diego City Opera, which the whole idea was uh, this was an opera company that was itinerant by choice, that we called ourselves sort of the speedy little food truck as opposed to Le Fleur, you know, that that we were doing small operas in site-specific locations and, and really offering the San Diego community types of work that maybe they wouldn't get to see on the main stage at LA or San Diego Opera. And it's interesting because from that notion, I think there's like four or five different opera companies in town now. And you guys were the first to sort of branch off and do something different. Now, I want to go back just a little bit because I do, I mean, being a mom is like a really big part of my experience of life. And as being an artist, and I know so many other artists, being a parent uh, shifts things. Yeah. and you said that you had a support system. I know you've worked all over the country. How long would you be gone for? And what was that like as a parent and how often? Yeah. Boy, those are good questions. I, I would, first off, I would say that every single decision that I ever made about being out of town, the first consideration was always the kids. Yeah. Always. And, uh, and that I, I turned down so much more work than I ever, you know, if if it had just been me and Chris, that would have been a different thing, but the kids always had to, had to be and continue to be a priority, even though they're grown men now. But, but that was always the first and most important thing. And that balance between what's enough as a career. Yeah. And how do I be the best kind of mom I can be for my kids? And, and sometimes those things just sit in a collision of difficulty and, when the kids were little, they traveled with me some. When I was when I was doing Margaret Garner, I remember we opened the show and I flew back to San Diego and took them back to Detroit with me and had Grange childcare and and all of that. I also remember we we had a rehearsal one day and it was Rodney Gilfrey, who is a dad, Denise Graves, who is a mom. And I hid the kids kind of in the corner of the pit. It was a, it's just a quick brush up rehearsal. Uh-huh. And Rod and, and Denise knew that my kids were there. And so they, they walk across the stage and they just look at the kids and they'd be like, they're fine. And they'd nod. Oh and my God. I know. I know. <laughs> about that. And I'm just like, thank you guys. You know, yeah. they were so kind and thoughtful to make sure that they, you know, they knew how important it was for me to be there and they knew how important it was that I could just take care of my kids. And it was a 45 minute rehearsal. I just, I just needed that 45 minutes, you know? And so, I mean, who knows what kind of career I would have had if, if we wouldn't have had the kids, I would not, I think have the capacity as a person to, to have done the kind of work I've been able to do if I hadn't been somebody's mom. (sighs) But I also remember about the time, you know, and, and, and you always do this thing, you're gauging, right? You're gauging like, okay, because really, this is the other thing that's great about operas. You're in maybe two and a half weeks, maybe three. You're, you're in so fast, everybody knows the show, you're staging 60 pages, you know, in a service, and you just go, go, go. It's really fast. You do it. Wow. You've got like seven days in the room. 
you're, you do a run through, you move everything on stage. It goes really fast, which is thank God, because doing a traditional theater experience, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do that. I just didn't have the patience or the bandwidth for it, but, but opera goes fast, which is fantastic. So I could, you know, zip out and zip back without too much disruption. But about the time my oldest was a freshman in high school, I had a summer at Glimmerglass and I was gone from May, June 1st until the middle of August. They were with Chris half the summer and then they were, then they were with me in Cooperstown for half the summer. And it was hard. It was, and it wasn't good for any of us. It was, I was like, Oh, there, we found it. There's the line. Yeah. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to, I need to really rethink things. I need to be home. I need to really just commit to being home. Uh, and I don't regret it. This was also part of starting city opera at that point in time that, you know, it was like, all right, I'm, I'm just doing maybe two or three little shows a year. And now I need to figure out something to do. That's going to keep me from going crazy. And so that was, that was really how that came out of it. So it's interesting. Yeah. All the choices were either about collaboration or about my kids. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's so great to hear you know, people in my life who don't necessarily have children and you see, okay, well, they can walk, they can talk, they can eat on their own. Okay. They should be okay. Right. And it's like, (laughs) right. No, no, there's so much more, but that's just so interesting. That gauge, you know, I think you might be able to expand it a bit, but how much are you willing to to miss and to miss. Right. We used to, we used to have a joke about how long the umbilicus was. So, you know, my, my oldest kid is in Japan right now. So the umbilicus is long, but it's like, Oh, you know, you need to come home. And, and with our youngest, who's, who's back living with us, which I'm so grateful for. And you've got this with your girls too, right? They, they pull away, they're in the other room and then they just come back and they ping you. And yes. then they go back and then they ping you and, you know, but, but part of I think what's so important is that they have to be able to do that. Yes. Um, I would also argue that if you ask my children, they would be like, she was gone all the time. <laughs> she was never here. And, you know, I had to change my own diapers. Right. So, <laughs> you can so, never do enough. Right. You can... Right. Right. And, and that's, you know, this is, this is part of the, this is part of the game. But we managed it and we talked a lot as a family always. But but yeah, I think about the time Jackson was 14 or 15, I I was like, I this I gotta stop. I, I gotta stop. And yeah. yeah, and really just anchored things in San Diego for for the next four or five years. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that because that's when I was introduced to you, I think shortly after one of your pieces. So I have never actually seen that work from San Diego city opera. Yeah. yeah. You know, we each borrowed, I think $500 from our mothers and, and got our, to pay for our 501 C three. And we, I have a really, really good friend who is a, a lawyer and she helped us and she was on yeah. the board and, you know, we just did really exciting work for, for that period of time. And, and part of what was exciting about it too, was that, you know, I mean, we were able to pay our singers and we were able to, to, to do work that, that wouldn't have been feasible for a big opera company. So, you know, one of the pieces and actually, which is continuing life was uh, Dominic Argento's The Andre Expedition. Oh yeah. um, We did it with, it's, it's basically a 35 minute long song cycle that we did uh, at Bread and Salt with three singers. 
And instead of it just being a song cycle, I staged it. And it was, it was beautiful and evocative. And, and then the funny thing, funny haha, is that uh, just this August, I made a virtual reality film of that same opera with actually with one singer playing all three of the different characters. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, it was the pandemic and everybody was locked down and I thought, trying to figure it out. What are we going to do? Right. And so, um, the baritone Michael Kioldi is a, is a good friend. So I got a little grant from the Arizona commission for the arts because I'm teaching at U of A now and, um, was able to bring in Michael and this really fantastic, uh, media designer named Peter Torpy. And we had a week uh, in Tucson, in the middle of the the hottest days possible, right? In, in yes. And you know, we're we're doing this opera about the Arctic. <laughs> Everybody's dripping wet from that, you know. And Michael's got all these scarves on. He's like, "Oh my God!" So we had a fan, like a little area fan, that we just put on him so that he wouldn't overheat. But yeah, we, we created this little virtual reality opera to, but it was the Andre expedition. And I thought, oh, it's, it's all the way back to city opera and how that piece just continues to have a resonance for me about foolish people doing foolish things. So was it Peter Hall said one time, directing operas is insane. And he said, it's like getting behind the wheel of a car when you're drunk. No one should ever do it. And yet... And yet there are those crazy few who yeah. do. So, yeah. So when you made this, the Andre expedition, you said it was a, a song cycle, mm-hmm. right? So was it a story? It was a song cycle that, that has a story in it and you yeah. staged yeah. it and you tell me about that process. Sure. Well, um, in 1897, three Swedish explorers decided that it would be a great idea to circumnavigate the North Pole in a hydrogen balloon. Okay. I know. So uh, so the three of them, one was a guy named Solomon Andre, who was uh, an explorer, kind of a Victorian explorer. His pal, whose name was Neil Strindberg, who was August Strindberg's nephew. And then this third guy that we don't really know much about, whose name was Newt Frankel. And they, they left Sweden and everyone was like, yay! And they... They lasted up in the air for about three days. And on the third day, the rain and precipitation started to pull the balloon down and then it would shoot back up in the air. And and so what happened was that these guys ended up out on the pack ice from July until September. And they all had diaries and they had film canisters. So they had, they took photographs of the journey and killing polar bears and so on. And they ended up on this Island in Norway in September. And then this is what I think is fascinating is that they all died. Oh my gosh. After surviving all that time. Right. So 30 years later, their bodies are found. There's wait, there's food. I mean, there was food. There were, there, there was plenty of food. They were eating seals and whatever. There was fuel. There was shelter. And so it's this question and the diaries. That's the other thing too. There are these diaries and the film canisters left behind. Oh my gosh. I know. I know. It's so so exciting. (laughs) So cool. Right. And so Dominic Argento, who is just so cool and such a genius, wove together the texts, the actual texts of the diaries 
and a little bit of extra stuff, but mostly it's just the diaries and, and set them to music. And then at the end, in my version of it, they're still out on the pack ice. Like this is, you know, my dramatic idea really is that when you come into this virtual reality world, you, you put on a VR headset and, and there is a snowstorm. And then as the snow storm clears, there's a beautiful young man playing a piano on an iceberg and the storm clears a little bit more and you see this other man sitting writing. And so you are this historical archeologist who comes upon this and, and then the story takes place in 360 degrees. So you look over and, and because of the magic of film, you have two guys who are the same singer, but playing two different roles. And then the third guy, and then we get on the ice on the balloon and we float up into the air and, and then we end up on the ice and all hell breaks loose. So it was, it was fantastic. It was fantastic to, uh, to work with Michael Kildy. And also there's this one little section where all three of the guys, this was just me, but all three of the guys sing the Swedish national anthem together. And it's just heartbreaking. It's so beautiful because these guys know they're not going to go home. You know, what do you, what do you do when, I don't know, do you lose faith? Do you lose faith? Do you give up? Do you keep fighting? I mean, it's just, it's these beautiful questions about what it means to be human, this taxonomy of loneliness and human anguish and beauty. That's yeah. the other piece of it too. It's just, it's beautiful. And, and Michael just sings the heck out of it. So I'm really pleased with it. And we're going to actually do a, a little rollout of the first 10 minutes at South by Southwest in, in March. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm really so excited. So what does this look like for an audience member? How does it all work? Because that's such a cool way of using new technology and making it performative. I love that. Well, here's what's cool. Any place in the world, if you have a virtual reality headset, a VR headset, you can just put on the headset and go to a link. And what I love about this technology is the quality of the equipment is so good that you actually are tricked into thinking that it's real. Wow. It's amazing. And it's so cool. Uh, and so you are wearing the headset and you're sitting basically in a chair and, and maybe you have cold packs on your feet or something, or so, I don't know if we're, we're actually going to go that far. And, um, <laughs> and you hear the snowstorm and you come across the beautiful young man at the piano. And then you see this other man and he starts to sing to you and he's singing. This is the other thing that's really cool about it. He's singing directly to you. Oh my gosh. And then he introduces all the other characters. And as you go through the story, each time something happens, the singers are telling just you this story. So it's a very different modality than say mm -hmm. traditional opera, you know, or even most traditional performance where you're behind a proscenium arch. Instead with this, the opera unfolds for you. Wow. You are, you are an audience. We call it an audient instead of an audience. You're an audient of one. And, you know, part of this, I was thinking about like, how do we, how do we find different ways to excite our audiences about, about creating work? Cause I've always been, I, I guess I would always say I'm a community-based artist that, that community is really important to me and, and that my community may not be a physical space. It may in fact be an idea, right? Like opera lovers throughout or, you know, adventurous people who like 
food trucks. The idea of being able to make a piece for anybody, any place in the world at any point in time, right? Could be, yes. not, and the other thing too, I'll just say is that this art form or this technology isn't for every single opera or every single theater piece or every single dance piece. It, right. you, you have to really curate what it would be a good fit for. It's, it's not, a, it's not going to be everything, but the pieces that it's right for are incredible. And it harkens back to that night of the room run, whether it was a theater piece or a dance piece or opera, like the room run. And everybody's like, this is our last night to be together in the room. And we're just going to go balls to the wall. You know, I'm, I'm good. You know, and everyone always starts off like, well, I'm not singing out tonight. And then somebody sings out and they're like, let's go. And you're, you're hit with this sonic, incredible experience. That is, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And I really wanted to figure out a way to capture that for, for audiences. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love everything you're saying and how you're describing it. And, oh, and there's, wait, there's one last thing. I just have to tell you this, this killed me. So Andre Solomon and Neil Sternberg and Newt Frankel are, are really heroes in Sweden. They're thought of as like, you know, some of the Apollo crews, like these guys really, they're just loved in Sweden. And, uh, apparently there's a museum for them. So I'm online looking at research and I find this little footnote that Neil Strindberg was trying to create a 360 degree film. I know a 360 degree film of the photographs that he had taken when they were in the Arctic. I called Michael and I called Peter and I was like, we're finished. It gives me shivers. I was like, we're finishing what he started, you know, over a hundred years ago that, that finally, we finished it. These are the things you just, you can't, you can't explain it. You just can't, you know, you're inspired. You don't always know why you just go with your inspiration. It's knocking on your brain. You have to try it. And lo and behold, it's that funny thing about, about faith. I, I think just like faith that you can d- accomplish something. And I, and honestly, again, this goes back to my kids. I don't think I had that sense of belief until I had my kids. Right. And that like somehow my capacity grew from that, you know, it's like, I'm, I am someone's mother. I have a responsibility to them and the world to, to somehow in my own way, make things better. And from that faith and that belief comes, you know, this capacity to, to step out on the pack ice, you know, and and know that it will support you. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you came back to that too, because that was a question I'd had from earlier was you, you had said that you felt like you had more capacity to do what you do because of being a parent. And I think that's so important because I remember before I was a parent and the idea of becoming a parent, I went, I'm not, I'm not going to want to create anymore. Oh no, what's going to happen? Because I just had this assumption that, and I, and it's the, you know, part of the truth that your biology would shift and it does, Yep. but it shifts in a way that if you, if you can bring yourself back to creating or keep creating in your life, it's just magic. It's magnificent. Yeah. You don't have space for the other 
stuff anymore. You, you have to follow those. Yep. And you get yeah. this laser focus, right? Of like, I have the length of a nap to figure out something that that's been my story. And I, you know, we always joke about the story of the Grinch when he says his heart grew three sizes that day. Yeah. Yeah. That, that my heart and my capacity grew to be the best I could be for them. I love it. This conversation is so nourishing me. <laughs> so thank you. Me too. And just to like remind myself, like sometimes we have that thing of like, how the heck did we get here from the journey of being, you know, being in the closet with my little brother in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you know, making shadow puppets to this other piece. And I I also think too that because I'm teaching at the University of Arizona now, I'm the head of the opera program. And I feel in so many ways that I'm absolutely in the right place for my students now because I know I know what it feels like to come from not very much, but to dream big. Yeah. And that there's, there's something wonderful about that and seeing that for my students as well. Yeah. And to keep going. And the fact that you didn't take every single opportunity and you have still been wonderfully successful, both in terms of your bio, but also in terms of your own experience. You know, I feel like part of success is to be able to feel like you've created something that is really valuable and that you can be proud of whether it's one audience member or thousands. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was in Denver this summer and my brother-in-law passed away and he'd been very sick and the hospice social worker came over to the house and he was from Philadelphia. And I said, Oh, I directed a couple of things in Philadelphia. And he goes, you know, the only thing I ever saw in Philadelphia was it was a Madama something. I go butterfly. And he goes, yeah. And he explained the production. I go, I directed that. He goes, are you serious? (laughs) I did. (laughs) Oh my gosh. He goes, that was so good. I'm like, Oh, thank you. Yeah. But who know, you know, 10 years after that, that I'm standing in front of my sister's garage and this guy's talking about a production I did. I was like, that's that's, a lovely reminder, you know, about, Oh, there, there's that. Right. Yeah. Also, I want to speak about accessibility because I feel like that's been important to you that opera is accessible to not just your typical high paying audience, but also people who maybe wouldn't spend a huge amount of money on opera or wouldn't think to, or haven't been exposed to it. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah. I had this incredible experience when I was directing Romeo and Juliet at San Diego opera and my next door neighbors who are professional people, had come to see the show and they were like, Oh, we loved it. It was so great. And I go, do you think you'll, do you think you'll come to the opera again? And my neighbor said, Cynthia, the tickets were $250 each. I was like, it was a huge amount. And I thought, you know, if you go to a rock concert and you pay that kind of money, you know, you're going to have a great time. Yeah. Or you go see Hamilton or you go see my fair lady or any Broadway show, you know, that you're going to have a great experience. Yeah. But opera is a risk. What if I don't like it? What if I'm not, what if I don't feel comfortable? What if, you know, I mean, there's so many things and there's cultural and and racial things that just are everywhere in that. And so I've been doing a lot of site specific work these last five or six years, really to bust out of the trappings of opera, to kind of knock down the walls of the plant and let people 
have that artistic experience. So we did uh, Daniel Catan's La Hija de Rappuccini at ENR2, which is this huge environmental, it's the environmental science building. And it has this outside atrium that goes six stories up and it was free to the public. And uh, we flew the singers up in the air. It was so cool. Oh my gosh. We had these women dressed as flowers who had these gigantic costumes. And at the end, they all flew up into the air. And it was beautiful. That space was important. But also that ENR2, this building, sits right at the intersection of South Tucson and the university. And one of the things that I was really aware of coming to U of A was that this is, and we just got our HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution accreditation, but it felt like the university, and I felt this way about a little bit when I was at UCSD, that the university sits kind of in a cordoned off space that's not part of the community. And mm-hmm. one of the things I just keep thinking about is like, how do we, how do we ensure that we are good neighbors, good artistic mm-hmm. neighbors, good community neighbors. And so setting that piece right at that intersection and making it free to the public. And guess what? Full every single night. There were oh, five. nice. Right. Because, of course, the risk isn't there. And yeah. it was a Spanish language opera. And a woman was conducting it. You know, so all of these shredded things that we just keep punching through to help let people know that it's a really accessible art form. It can be really accessible. Not And again, not everything is. I personally can sit through five hours of whatever and I'm perfectly happy but mm-hmm. but I also know that you know I live in a house of men who can't <laughs> <laughs> so so one of the things you know we joked about was uh you know the opera has to be short and you have to be able to have a drink <laughs> when you're watching it so true so true somewhere in there or during or yes right, right. so this idea of how we are good members of our community and how we make people feel invited. The expectation is that you should feel welcome. Yeah, this, I mean, this is important for all art forms. It's so important just to invite your audience in whatever way and to be aware of the trappings of our society and not to necessarily go against it, but to say, okay, yeah, it needs to be a little shorter. Yeah. How can we get creative with that? How can we work with that? those kind of limitations can be really fruitful and freeing. Yeah. 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 And I think again, too, being that little kid growing up in New Mexico where there wasn't a lot of that, or that I think that, that there was, I think maybe kind of a stigma about growing up the way I did and where I did that, that you didn't always feel welcome. Ah, uh, yeah. That's, you know, like that's such a deep, deep place of like, Oh, are you welcome here? Maybe not because you're a girl or because you're whatever, or that you didn't go to school at a certain place. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Just gonna punch a hole through that. That's, that's really important. So, yeah. And how lucky these students in Arizona, University of Arizona, to be considering these ideas that you're bringing to them as they're entering the world of opera and considering performance. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's so funny because I have two students right now who are doing their DMA students and they're thinking about minoring in, in directing and, and they're both such entrepreneurs. Like one of them wrote, she collaborated with a composer and they wrote an opera during COVID and again, got a little grant and are, you know, moving forward with it. And I, I was just like, that's exactly what you need to do. You have to not just be entrepreneurial, but you have to figure out a way 
to get your voice out. Part of that is trusting your voice, right? But also know that people want to hear it. Your next project, the Andre Expedition, where is it going to be? Um, We're doing a a little rollout of the first 10 minutes of the opera at South by Southwest at Wonder Space. We're really excited. That's going to be in March. And then with my students, we're doing Johnny Skiki and Swore Angelica, two little Puccini one acts. That'll be great for them to sing and get some Italian rap back in their voices. So yeah, that, that takes me into May. I'm really excited. And then just trying to get the rest of Andre finished and do a little more fundraising for that so that we can make sure that we pay these artists. who I know that part of the process is that incubation time. Are you incubating anything at the moment or thinking about grant writing? God, that's such a great question. I have to say that when COVID hit, I was so exhausted. Yeah. Right. And I've talked to a number of my friends about this that I felt like I hibernated. I mean, I was teaching online and everything I had done was just like going off the books, but that I, I really took some time to just rest. I realized like in, in 2017, it was the first year my kids were both out of the house. I directed 10 operas. Like that's just not healthy, but that, you know, having gone this hard and this fast for this many years, COVID gave me an opportunity first off, just to spend some time at my own house with my husband, which was great, but also to just to recharge and to clean out some drawers in my mind. And out of that came Andre. Mm -hmm. So, so that was, that was the big thing. I've got a couple of other little projects. I've got a Stravinsky that I want to look at doing as a virtual reality piece and yeah, just cooking up some ideas. I've been really having fun with this VR technology and how it, again, to how it levels the playing field in a lot of ways for, for people. So yeah, Andre's, Andre's still in the, Andre's on the front burner. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, as it should be. <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yeah, thank you. It's nice not to feel like I'm going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. For the first time in in years and years and years to to garden, which I know sounds so goofy, but just to, you know, to say, oh, I there's time in this day to to do some self-care and to think about my own gratitude. Yeah. We can think that that being an artist means going 100 miles an hour and making something and creating something. But it's so important that we do stop and garden. Yeah. And then I think that there's a discomfort in not doing. Yeah. Right. It's just like, oh, God, I'll never I'll never work again. It's all over for me. Right. And then I just was like, well, what if that's the case? What if you never do anything again? And then it started to be okay. Nice. I was like, (laughs) and now you've made this piece that, that I could get myself a pair of those goggles and click on a link and watch. Yeah. The next time, the next time I see you, I'll bring, I'll bring my little virtual reality headset and and I'll, I'll plug it in so you can see. Nice. Getting of it. Cause it's, yeah, it's, it's just wacky and fun. It's really fun. And, uh, I, you know, and this is always the thing too. It's like, I like it. I don't know. Will anybody else like it? I don't know, but I sure like it and I'm really happy with it. And, and that's, you know, this is also that thing about self-care to just own 
what you like mm-hmm. or own what you feel is, is worth your time. Yeah. Well, it sounds amazing. And can our listeners of this podcast have access to it? Soon. Okay. When we get that, when we get that first 10 minutes to look like something, I'll, I'll send you guys, I'll send everybody the link. And Okay. See the first 10 minutes of the Andre expedition with, with the fabulous Michael Kioldi, who, God, I love that man. He's so great. He's just brilliant. And, uh, and Peter Torpy, who, uh, was a U of A undergrad and then went on to MIT to do his PhD at the opera of the future lab. And I know, I know these guys are are boxed and so above my weight. I'm like, Oh my God. But, but yeah, we, we had this sacred week together to, to just to make this happen. And it was pretty damn cool. It sounds amazing. I love it. Cynthia, thank you so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for doing this. I think it's such a cool podcast and, and I'm really excited to, to, to have been invited to, <laughs> to be part of it. Thank you. Well, it's 100% my happy place. I'm realizing it is just, it's just amazing. I feel the feelings of being in the, of being in the performance as you're talking with us about the amazing work you're doing. I mean, I can feel that feeling in my body and I'm like, yes, this is all I want. <laughs> I actually don't need live performance. So I that's not true either, but, <laughs> but for a moment I get a whisper of that and it makes me so happy. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. That conversation was truly nourishing. I felt like Cynthia gave me permission to just be as an artist. Here are my takeaways. Number one, Find those communities of colleagues who will be honest with you when your work is a hot mess. This will push you to always up your game. Number two, listen to yourself about what the next step will be to help you grow in your career. Number three, parenthood is balancing what's enough for your career and how to be the best parent for your kids. This is not an easy balance. It often takes a village. But also, number four, in Cynthia's words, I would not have the capacity as a person to have done the kind of work I've been able to do if I hadn't been somebody's mom. I love that. Number five, part of success is feeling that you've created something really valuable, whether it serves one audience member or thousands. Number six, How do we make sure we're being good artistic neighbors? What kind of walls can we bust down to let more people in? If we take away some of the risk, we invite more people to take part in our work. Number seven, setting limitations for yourself can be very fruitful and freeing. You'll be forced to get creative and open up more possibilities. Number eight, allow yourself as an artist to be entrepreneurial write those grants, start your own projects. You have to figure out a way to get your voice out there. Number nine, take some time to just rest. Self-care and gratitude allows us as creators to open up to the creative possibilities. Number 10, own what you like. Thank you to Cynthia Stokes for sharing all of her brilliance with us today. I cannot wait for her to release that link 
to the VR opera, to the virtual reality opera. I will send it to you all somehow, some way. In the meantime, go follow her on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is at Cynthia and the guys, and then check out her website, CynthiaStokes.com for more. And thank you all for listening. I know that your time is precious and I appreciate that you're spending it with me and with these amazing artists. I hope you find yourself being excessively creative. I will see you in two weeks. Until then. <laughs>